It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Chris. You know what time of year it is? I do. It's um, it's the time of year that uh, your listenership gets introduced to the glory of taps. That's correct. Our listenership, because you're on that too. So, yeah. Um, actually, taps had a lot to do with the genesis of this project. Frankly, exactly. So, um, yeah. So this is taps all the time. Taps is like our our uh, father. Yeah, it's funny because I posted it. <laughs> it's, uh, we were birthed through its canal, so more like it's our mother. But um, I posted it and thought, like, oh yeah, then I'll, you know, I got all this other stuff to do today. And then of course I spent like the next three hours just kind of going back and forth with people, you know. Um, so it was kind of funny and fun. Uh, everybody seemed to have taken it in its appropriate uh, category of satire and and mirth. So yeah, um, so and I far. listened to it too yesterday, and I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. Um, yeah, funny. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, I think that we kind of touched on it at the end of the episode about the kind of meta commentary of you know just like why people are so interested in hearing hearing uh hearing us kill you know things so to speak ideas yes. and whatever, and it is just that uh release or i'm not sure what it is but i think there's something there that's really interesting it's risky and it's like there's not a lot of uh media outlets uh at least in climbing that come at their listenership as hard as i do on that and we do Mm -hmm. on here and i mean because it's like we just hammered gym climbing like that was kind of the entire theme and we all climb in gyms and you know and there's this mythological or this like uh, it's not really mythological, but there's this group of like gym climbers who don't climb outside, and like we just took them to town. And I, I mean, people like that listen to my podcast, so it's funny because I was thinking about that today. Like, how hard can I go at these people until they stop, like, actually get <laughs> literally angry and stop listening? But I mean, that's the the whole media landscape is that nobody wants to lose, you know, and possibly piss anybody off where they mm-hmm. wouldn't show up, you know, to their mm-hmm. podcast or whatever. So, um, it's kind of interesting. And maybe that's it, why it, our listenership is so relatively low is that we, piss yes. off. We, we actually piss <laughs> off too many people. <laughs> I, I don't know what, I don't know why actually. I, I just think what we do is, I don't know. It's so unusual. I just, I think it deserves more listenership, but whatever, we'll keep working on it. Um, but the gym climbing thing, I actually um, also had a revelation. This is, we can move on from the, the TAPS thing from promoting the other podcast. Is I had this revelation while I was in Wisconsin. I went to this climbing gym. I was in Wisconsin on my way to the, the Michigan Ice Fest, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I went in there kind of before I drove up there because I knew what was happening up there, which is also we'll get into in a minute. Um, and I thought, well, I should go climbing before I go up there. So I went over there for a couple hours, bouldered a bit, and then got on the damn auto belays. Mm-hmm. And I actually had this like breakthrough where I started projecting this 512 on the auto belay. And I basically stepped into a time machine. I realized that I stepped into a time machine to like 1981. <laughs> 
where I you were yo-yoing. I was totally yo-yoing, and it was like it was so challenging and and like at first like completely frustrating, and then I was like, this is actually really cool. I mean, because it was like the kind of yo-yoing where your Belair, and I, I assume this probably happened, you know, for the super hard course. I mean, as soon as you fell, they were like, zing, down you go to the ground. So you can't even like look at what you <laughs> missed. <laughs> and it was like, you know, and, and that's like totally was the ethic. Like, don't cheat up there by like grabbing the holds at all. You know, it was one thing to not be able to keep going. Um, and of course, what we're referring to is that you couldn't hang down. You couldn't hang there and try the moves again. And uh, I just, it was so funny because at first I was like, so I'd be like, no, 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 no. And I'd like, you know, watch the hold that I tried to grab the wrong way, like go away. And then I kind of got really into it. And also it was this incredible workout because I was like climbing back up and like, I, and I also like would sit on the ground and study the the move from the ground and try to figure out something, then go up and try it, and it wouldn't work, and I, like, you know, 25 feet back to the ground. Were you filled with, like, a little uh, pang of ethical righteousness about your your style? (laughs) Not not exactly, but, I mean, also the gym was dead, so it wasn't like anybody was waiting in line, because then it would get really frustrating, you know, if you had to let, like, three other people play through on the other routes before you got a chance to try it again. Although, actually... In retrospect, that probably was better too, because as usual, when I'm climbing by myself in the gym, I don't rest at all. And so, um, but anyway, I I just thought I just actually mused about that for the whole drive up to Michigan about funny. how I had I had me and you know early Scotty Franklin were basically <laughs> the same person um, up there on this climb. <laughs> so this can yeah. um we can uh, incorporate this into our crack to gym initiative where. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of hang, we like make hang dogging uh, verboten because it's doesn't prepare you sufficiently for working projects on auto belays in the gym. Yes, so exactly, yeah, yeah, you should just be lowered to the ground every time you fall. <laughs> but I don't know if anybody else out there has ever done that, and I've never really, I've never really honestly seen or talked to anybody who tries particularly hard on an auto belay. I mean, like you know the the gumbies that are you know they're trying hard no matter what. But like most of us, and I think you'd agree with this, like we go in, we warm up on the auto blaze, we run laps, you know, it's like an endurance thing. But I literally had never tried to project something more than like falling off and doing it again. The other problem is that oftentimes there aren't that harder routes on the auto belay walls because they have to be somewhat vertical. Mm-hmm. And this just happened to luck out that this pretty hard, like 12B or so was was on this wall. So it was fun. I can give you my quick update on um, my auto belay experience of the past few months because um, we've talked shit about them on this uh, podcast and kind of wondered aloud about why gyms even have them and if they're kind of, you know, encouraging a kind of mentality that maybe isn't, you know, the best mentality to have as a climber. Um, See episode, blah, 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 whatever it is. And uh, (laughs) we'll put a link in the show notes to it. But I, you know, our local gym here in Grand Junction has a bunch of auto belays and it's, it's something that I've ironically come to really enjoy because I've been rehabilitating my shoulder and, um, basically I can only climb like whatever the five, eight to five, 10 routes that most auto belays service. So it's super convenient for me. I've just come to enjoy just doing like easy laps in the gym on the auto belay. And also our, our two daughters, like absolutely love them basically. And we can just clip them in like the older one can like do, you know, do it herself. We've kind of trust her enough to, to do it appropriately. 
they just climb like 600 pitches a day, like basically. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I just came up with a phrase to go with that. The, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trademark this. The auto babysitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. They I mean, probably it was, can't unhook themselves either. I bet you a Piper can, but I bet you Bree can't get no, off Brie of that. No, Bree can't get off of it. Yeah. yeah. So you just leave her over there. I mean, how far can they get, right? <laughs> no, we, we like literally came home from the gym and we were like, what if we should we just invest in one of these fucking things so that we can put it up in our house and just have, yeah, a, an auto babysitter, like right. <laughs> just entertain our children <laughs> for hours at a time. Um, we, we took a trip up to Salt Lake a couple of weeks ago to see some friends. I think the same weekend you were in, in, um, up at Michigan and, uh, we went into one of the gyms up there and they don't have auto blaze anywhere in the gym except for the, uh, speed route. It was just kind of like shit. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do with our kids now? Um, <laughs> so I'm kind of like coming full full circle on on the, uh, or maybe it's a 180 on the auto belays. And um, I think that they should be everywhere in every gym. I'm literally going to go as soon as we're done with this. I'm going to clean up a little bit and go auto belay uh, at the. There's like the teeny little rec wall here mm-hmm. in, in Carbondale, and so I've been. I've been going over there and lifting weights, but it, it also just running laps up and down on this little tiny wall. And, nice. Um, there's, it, I got to talk to the to. I happen to know the the root setter. They need a couple more harder roots because um, it's kind of it's a total like rec center wall, right. which everybody who knows what I'm talking about knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so yeah, I'm gonna go out of play in just a few minutes. Once we're done with this, that's how I do it. I am. <laughs> what has happened to us, Chris? <laughs> old age and families and i don't know we're just we gotta we're just trying to be with it we're trying to be lit <laughs> like the like the kids so um well tell me about the ice fest what was uh did you well, do your your annual one pitch of ice climbing no i did not and actually i was i was so backstories i went to the, the michigan ice fest uh, i think five years ago i think we figured out it was 2019 and i went with steve dilk but ever since then, Bill's kind of wanted me to come back, and Bill Thompson that that sort of, sort of runs it. He's got a whole great crew up there. Um, but this year, leading up to it, I'm watching the weather, and it's you know weather's out of control and wacky and warm, and so I'm watching the temperatures go up all week beforehand, and you can kind of read between the lines on their posts like that things are probably like starting to fall apart. And then when I'm there in Wisconsin, I flew into Green Bay to see my parents. I'm in, I'm there, and it's like Wednesday. The fest has already started, but I mean, it's in the 50s, right? And I'm like, dude, this is not gonna, this isn't going good. So they got one day in, and then I showed up on Thursday. And actually, maybe they went out a little bit on Thursday, but then I talked to some guides, and and they were just like, no, we are not, we're not doing this anymore. Like things are falling down, rocks are falling down, and ice is falling down and um so basically the ice fest was all ice climbing was canceled mm-hmm. and then the park service uh the pictured rocks national seashore or shoreline it's park service like a national park and they closed it said you guys can't go up there anymore you're you're fucking it up i mean you know they they weren't like angry but they're like we can't do this and the ice fest was already like yeah yeah we know we can't go back up there because mm-hmm. people were marching up the hillside in their crampons which you know aerates the soil but it also totally destroys it but um i mean it's the midwest like that stuff will grow back it's not like out here where those trails would last forever but 
anyhow, so yeah, the whole thing or all the ice climbing gets shut down. And I'm there on Thursday and like kind of wondering what's going on. There is definitely a mood. But man, it's like no, no, nobody left and nobody, well, I wouldn't say nobody, but I, I expected like all these people to peel off and go home because, I mean, there's no ice climbing. You're at an ice fest with no ice. But uh, nobody did. And actually everybody, like there was sort of like this kind of downer mood when it got announced. And then by like Friday, like no one cared. Wow. and. Because there was events and they did all these like, you know, these schoolroom versions or ground clinic versions of stuff. Um, you know, the the avalanche people could go, still go, you know, find some snow out there and look for beacons. And, you know, there was all these things you could do, just no ice climbing. Uh, ironically, I was as prepared to ice climb as I've ever been at an ice climbing festival. <laughs> Usually I show up with one thing that I, one part of my kit that I don't have. And therefore I either have to borrow it from somebody or I have to go and you know do the the rental checkout but i'm never up early enough because usually i'm up all fucking night drinking so (laughs) i miss like all the tools they're gone you know by the time i'm even drinking coffee so um but this year i was ready to go i had our friend hayden kennedy's boots which i inherited on these incredibly high-tech fucking sportiva boots (laughs) that like you i don't know they're for walking on the moon or something something. what's that probably wear them on makalu or whatever well i wish I, they're pretty new. I actually wish they were a little beat up because then I could imagine they went up some climb. Yeah. They look like they were probably replacements. But anyway, we all got his stuff for anybody listening. Um, his mom had a party and kind of said, take this stuff and climb with it because it's just sitting here. So, um, And I happen to be as relatively close to his shoe size. So I had some crampons from him and then I borrowed some tools from Francis and I was ready to go. And then it's like they never even came out of my bag. So. <laughs> There you go. But I just that have to like that you brought all that stuff. I know. And and even though even when I was packing it on on Wednesday I'm like I'm not why am I bringing this stuff? But I just wanted like good faith attempt. Yeah. Um but man, I tell you and it's like maybe it's it would have happened at all any ice fest. Although I have been to an ice fest where the ice fell down before um in in Cody. So I do have something to compare it to. I think it I mean I really think the Midwestern like quality of it like is part of what just kept it kept it rolling. I mean, people had work off, they had their lodging fixed, they might as well stay kind of thing. But they didn't stay and mope around. They stayed and were psyched, you know? So yeah, I, I just have to like sort of nod, give give a tip of the hat to the Midwesterner psych to just like put up with shitty conditions and make the best of it. Maybe it speaks to the testament of the, the, the people who went to the fest themselves, but um, I think there's also an element of just that People go to ice fest more for the fest than the ice yeah. in general. And um, it's just about partying and, you know, camaraderie and community and stuff. I think that's true. I mean, because everybody talks about how if like if you go to Ure, I mean, and you want to climb ice, you might as well go the weekend before or after mm-hmm. the ice fest because the place is bonkers. But at the same time, the Midwesterners, like, it's not like they easily can go anywhere and climb the following weekend. Right. You know, it's like, here in Colorado, yeah, if you want to, you skip a weekend of climbing ice, you can just go the next weekend, um, you know, because it's pretty, it's a pretty sort of rare commodity there in Michigan um, or in the Midwest in general. And these are a lot of Chicago people or uh, Minneapolis people, you know. So, um, yeah, but they still, they still raged. And then I got to talk about this other part of the whole Michigan Ice Fest um, is that 
which I at first didn't even know was happening. Um, but after we, I came back last time and did a report here on the run out, we've been doing this that long now, which is kind of, kind of crazy. But I talked, I, I, I dissed their closing party, you know, not heavily, but I mentioned that it was kind of, you know, the party down in, in, uh, in Ure was sort of this outrageous, like bonkers dance party. And, and they had like a kind of more of a stand around watch bluegrass band kind of thing. So Bill uh, takes, you know, takes this slight uh, to heart and then he starts naming the dance party after me. And so it's in, like for the last four years, it's in the program as the Chris Kalous dance party. Like it's posterized. I got a poster here. I brought, I brought one home. Holy shit. Oh my God. Your ego does not need this. I know. Well, I'm basically, I think I'm Bootsy Collins or maybe George Clinton. With, it's like my head on one of those, one of the P-Funk guys. Anyhow, so Bill's like, you got to come back. I've named the party after you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So he's kept this joke running for four years or five years. I, I, I don't know exactly, but finally I'm there. And all these people are, are like, yeah, we, we thought you were going to be here last year because your name was on this party. <laughs> so like for four years, people have been at this party. Like, I don't know if they expected me to DJ um, or like play music or at least just be there. And I haven't ever been there. And, and finally I made it to the party. And let me tell you, did you, you know that that was, poster was was going to be part of the event, or was that no? A surprise? I saw it when I got there. Oh my god! Yeah, it was a surprise. Yeah, holy shit! So, also, I want to say that the party was awesome. Yeah, it was. It was off the hook. They had a great band, actually, not unlike the band that I was in here in Carbondale. Um, although they played a little more modern music, but it was it was uh, same kind of lineup, yeah. girl singer, and uh, sounded great. People raged. It was it was super super fun that and we went across the street to this bar that literally is called whiskey dicks <laughs> <laughs> and it you know you can imagine what kind of bar this is oh yeah so we went across the whiskey dicks and then i mean it was it was super fun it was an awesome night and uh and you know i wasn't able to like put my dj set up or anything but uh you're probably not hopefully... gonna find a lot of verve at whiskey dicks no <laughs> no <laughs> and then of course we ended up back at the at the hotel and um till like four in the morning but uh uh in the morning i i what did I, I said something to the receptionist lady um about something that night and she's like oh yeah i heard that it got a little bit lively after the bars were let out <laughs> so i think there were some other people complaining but anyhow so i just wanted to i want to like make up for my slight by saying that the closing party with or without my name on it was was awesome, but maybe uh, maybe Bill can let the joke go now. <laughs> Don't do it, Bill. <laughs> Anyhow, but yeah, good time despite no ice. Uh, congratulations to making a, a sick event. I mean, Michigan's legendary. So go Michigan. Josh Wharton is one of America's top alpine climbers with light and fast ascents of iconic peaks all over the world. His latest first free ascent with Vince Anderson is called Suerte and is located on Jirashanka in Peru. This ascent is featured in a new film in Real Rock 18. I first went to Jirashanka in 2015 with a couple of Czech guys, one of whom, Stanley Verba, lives in Colorado. And another guy we met there. 
And it was kind of just a trip that came out of wanting to pivot from going to the Himalaya every year and go somewhere that was like a bit easier logistically, more likely to have good weather and, um, you know, not take so much time and effort as a new dad, essentially, because alpine climbing is a time and money intensive thing. And so that's how I wound up there and then had a really good trip and realized that it was a cool objective, even though we didn't make to the top. And so that sort of drew me in and that's how I kept going back. So I made a trip in 2018 and then another trip in 2019 and then 20. I read that you got close to the top in 2019. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we were... Um, Who's we this time? Uh, Vince Anderson and I okay. got within maybe a couple hundred meters of the summit on that last trip and um, kind of just made the decision to turn around late in the day. We hadn't brought bivy kit. We didn't have any water. It looked like some kind of complicated climbing to get to the summit. It was sort of like a uh, totality of factors why we turned around, not really one specific thing, but it felt like the right decision at the time, just given the risk levels and being late in the day and the nights in Peru are really long. So it's not the kind of place where you want to sit out a bivy with no kit. And then I sort of debated Hemden Hod, um, Vince and I did whether it was worth going back, but we ultimately decided to go back. It's kind of interesting to consider alpine climbing as this like projecting style of, of ascent where you, you know, do you take multiple trips to the same place and try the same route over and over again until you do it? I mean, I think that it's kind of a little different from the way expeditions were conceived in years and decades ago uh, on some level. And so is that just kind of what it takes to do a hard route in the mountains or is it just a, a matter of getting luck and conditions or? I mean, we call it alpine red pointing. Um, cause it's honestly not that dissimilar in some ways from, you know, red pointing a sport climb. Uh, every time you go, you learn a little bit more, um, the detail and what's involved in pulling it off. And I think it's become more common, especially with the harder Alpine routes that you read about, just because there are so many factors that go into success. So it's sort of hard to just show up and pull something off, um, that's really difficult for you because, you know, there's bit of root finding involved there's conditions there's weather there's all these things that kind of have to come together and so typically like i would say more of the badass alpine routes that you read about wind up or hear about wind up requiring multiple trips have you been on trips where you've just kind of written it off like in the future like you're like i'm not coming back to this because the you, you what you learn is that this is either not a good route or not a not an interesting objective or just too hard or something like that. Like, is it, has that ever been the case or is it always just this process of, oh, I, I understand like what I need to do differently next time in order to succeed? Um, no, there have definitely been some things I've written off where you show up and you're just like, oh, this isn't a good thing. For instance, um, there's a big mountain in Peru called Huascaron that Casarado did a route on in the 70s. That's a really impressive big wall that he rope soloed. And I took a trip to go try that. And we walked up to the base and the glacier at the bottom of the wall was gone and there was near constant rock ball. It had just changed so much that it was clear that it wasn't safe anymore or like reasonable anymore. So um, yeah, it just never went back. Just never even tried. And what do you do with the sort of disappointment? I mean, are, are, you, are you pretty good at just moving on, writing it off like it's part of the game or... Tell me a little bit about that because, I mean, I know you've also had this like repeated multi-year uh, obsession with the roots in the uh, the Latok 
group there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's I think maybe when you were referring to like I'm I'm I was kind of over going to the Himalayas. Uh, you might have been referring to that specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what what do you do with the compartmentalizing the the aw shucks? Let's get out of here. Too bad we spent all this fucking money and time to come here. Yeah. You know, are you able to move on? Like it's part of the deal, I guess, huh? I think I think when you're younger and less experienced, you do spend a lot more time sort of hemming and hawing on those things. Like, oh, did we make the right decision? Should we have gone for it? Um, you know, and I think as you climb more and go on more of these trips and have more experience, then it becomes easier to sort of like sit with whatever decision you make. You know, as we get older, we all get more comfortable in our own skin. We all get sort of like that early youthful ambition kind of tapers off a bit and you sort of like make the best decision with information that you have at the time. And then you just, you know, that sits with you just fine, you know. So I would say younger self, mid-20s, I might have hemmed and hawed a little bit. But older self, it's sort of, oh, well, yeah, it's clearly out of condition or, you know, whatever it may be. Well, it's funny, too, because for me, and, I, you know, I don't do stuff like that, but like the draw back to the comforts of, of civilization and home, I think, seem like seem like they help me, too. Like, well, we can't do this, but you know what? I need a shower anyway. Let's get out, you know, kind of thing. Or like, <laughs> that means I can get home a week early, you know, or whatever. It's like, it's, you know, in that thought, like, never. Well, I didn't have a home to go to, but, you know, those kind of thoughts never occurred to me before. It was just like, what's next? What's next? What's next? But I don't know if you agree with that, too, but. Um, you know, you've got your uh, art on the wall behind you and your nice house there and Estes and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a nice Yeah, that to stuff be. tends to be right. sort of relative to the situation. Right. Like if you're festering on some, the side of some glacier in the middle of nowhere, the festering can be a little harder. But if at Peru, for instance, base camp is quite nice and the getting there and getting out is not that hard. Right. So there's not, there's not that draw. It's actually like a, an excellent place to be. So... Yeah, it just sort of depends a bit on the situation. Seems like the uh, Peruvian Andes have been a place that have been more impacted by climate change than maybe the Himalaya even. Um, I don't know if you agree with that, but mm-hmm. you kind of hinted at the fact that one of these mountains is quite different than uh, the conditions were back in the 70s. But what what do you see from that um, from that climate change perspective in, down in the Peruvian Andes? Yeah, I'm obviously not an expert, but I think that um, because Peru is so temperate, so the temperatures don't change throughout the year very much, um, climate change is hitting uh, the Andes like especially hard. Um, and that was really obvious going to Jirashanka year after year, like how much it was changing, how much the glacier was receding, like the route felt different to some degree every time we climbed on it which was just a real, really wild experience, you know, to have it thrown in your face so clearly. Was it falling apart? Um, it was like the, like the, you know, people have been talking about Patagonia, like kind of everything that was permanently frozen into place is starting to come off. Did you have that feeling when you were climbing on it? Yeah, to some degree, but mostly it's really, was really obvious with where you got onto the glacier, the glacier just melting back, like, mm-hmm. you know, probably a quarter mile over the course of a couple of trips, five years or whatever. And then also the ice roofs receding. So the first time I tried the route, we climbed a huge ice pillar that was formed over the the first ice roof. And the ice roof kept receding. So like then the second time you had to climb a little choss 
to get onto this ice roof. And then by the trip where Vince and I succeeded, you had to dry tool for maybe 15 meters to get up to the ice. And all of that rock is like fresh, super exposed, chossy rock. So um, yeah, it just kept evolving more and more or devolving, I suppose. Does it seem like a a lot of the, um, does it seem like there's more like, I mean, on the flip side, more like rock climbing potential on some of these big faces? Is that kind of the, the, uh, well, I think the rock that's being exposed for the most part is not very good. So to answer your question, yes, but quality rock climbing potential, no. (laughs) Right. Well, that's what's kind of interesting about the route you did. I mean, there's like, it looked like some pretty stellar rock climbing, um, on at Mm -hmm. least parts of the route. So why don't you talk about that? Yeah, there actually is a, at the bottom of the wall is maybe like 400 meters, 500 meters or something of steep limestone, which is actually super high quality and has some great pitches. It feels a little bit like climbing in Europe in spots, but that's unique to the Y-Wash, whereas the Blanca is granite. Um, So the granite that's being exposed is all junky, broken not frozen together stuff um in the why wash some of those walls like i think there is potential for some pretty interesting you know kind of high-end sport slash hybrid climbing to be done there mm-hmm. yeah i mean can you talk just about the the route in the in in that sense because it seemed like a very modern climb and you know that idea that it takes all the skills and uh i don't think when we look at these big alpine routes that people are expecting you know basically like that kind of sporty rock climbing to mm-hmm. expose itself in these climbs. And it's kind of, it's unusual. I mean, altitude, you know, in the Himalayas and stuff have a lot to do with that as well. But um, the fact that it called for 513 rock climbing in addition to the ice and the, and the mixed climbing is kind of impressive and not something you see very often on, on big Alpine routes. Yeah. So an Italian team had established the bottom part of the route sometime in the early 2000s up to the ridge, like, and um, they had sort of mixed free and aid climbing and put in rivet ladders in the harder bits. And so that created a really awesome opportunity to, for free climbing because the protection, there were already bolts essentially in the hardest stretches of climbing. So you could free climb those. Um, and then you join the existing Austrian ridge from the late 50s. But that part of the route has just changed so much with climate change and exposed those big ice roofs. So that's kind of why it also had this steep ice and mixed climbing. And that was honestly what kind of drew me into the route because I realized from that very first trip where we actually did get pretty high on the climb, but we weren't free climbing, that it would be a really cool free climbing objective because it had pretty difficult climbing in every genre. And it was also objectively quite safe. So it felt like something, oh, this kind of fits my skill set and is exciting to go back to because I know it's not super dangerous. And it's kind of rare to encounter a route where to free climate, you have sort of like high, relatively high level technical difficulty in every genre, um, which is something that I've always sort of aspired to as a climber. Like since I started climbing, my idea of the best climber, somebody who could kind of get the rope up on any pitch and uh, that this mountain fit that very, very well. So kind of what drew me to it in a lot of ways. So what are your kind of ground rules in your head for style? Alpine climbing often is just by hook or by crook, like, okay, pull mm-hmm. on the piton, get an ice tool in, you know, climb up that, you know, aid climb this, free climb when it's easiest and fastest, but not, don't worry about it. 
too much, like freeing the pitches. But here's this this climb where you have to switch these modes. And uh, so, what what were kind of your ground rules or your your at least aspirations as far as style was concerned? And no, it was like very specifically my goal to free climb the route. Okay. Um, and so, to me, that meant red pointing whatever pitches it was. If that meant having to try them more than once. Fortunately, the five thirteen pitch is pretty close to the ground, so that makes it kind of a bit easier to work. And I'd already in previous trips, you know, figured that pitch out and managed to free climb it. The trick about it was that it often gets wet too, because some snow sits on a ledge right above it. So I kind of made the stylistic compromise to climb it, free climb it first where the wall was dry, then fix a rope. And then when we did the push a few days later, did not free climb that pitch. In past attempts, I had climbed the pitch when it was wet, but like done it on top rope or something like that. So, um, and then managed to climb the rest of the route all free without having to, without falling off or having to like pull the rope or work pitches. Mm -hmm. But that's how I would have done it had that happened actually in the film the hardest pitch of the route is not in the film because we didn't do a good job of capturing it because we're not we're amateur videographers um but getting onto the getting past the first ice roof involves some really steep overhanging chossy dry tooling that was pretty difficult to sort of like climb on site and protect well enough and that kind of thing yeah vince in his usual style kind of just you know downplayed that uh, what was obviously like super gnarly when we saw him do his slideshow but uh but yeah it's fascinating to think about this like idea that you know like there's probably like tick marks and shit on your on that pitch right like yeah. you go up and like get it done in like pure sort of sport style mm -hmm. um that i mean you know it's not like the th image we have about like the gnar alpine climbing that you're in your in your tight shoes and and grab your tick marks and get and red point the pitch kind of thing. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that. I think the cool thing is is that it requires all the skills, right? There's yeah. a bit of the gnarliness up high, and then there's a bit of the sport climber down low, and like there's a bit of of, of all that, and that's what makes it intriguing, you know, to me anyway. Yeah, one thing that, uh, that's obviously really um, striking about you as a just a climber, and um, I think it speaks to the style of this route and just the quality or just like the the character of the route itself is that you're just a very high end climber in all the disciplines, and um, obviously, as you just hinted at, it's like something that you kind of consciously aspire to. I, I guess, like, I know this is a hard question to answer, but like, how did you get so high end in all the disciplines? Because it is like kind of a Obviously, there's trade-offs with, um, you know, you get super sucked into sport climbing or, you know, super sucked into alpine climbing. One compromises the other. And so how do you manage, I guess, how do you manage like to kind of stay at a reasonable high-end level in all the different areas of climbing? Well, I think that for me, it's been a really, you know, very fortunate and grateful to have been climbing full-time now for like 20 years. And for me, it's made it way more interesting to be in all the various genres because I feel like I would get bored and sort of eddy out if I was just doing one thing, just trying always to climb a harder sport route or harder boulder problem. So it's been great from a motivation point of view. I think from like sort of getting to a high level is, you know, you do them, do all the genres with a bunch of passion and put a bunch of time and energy into them and effort and hard work. And then some of the genres become more experience-based. 
So like, I don't need to go practice ice climbing all the time to, to still be good at ice climbing. Like it comes back very quickly. And a lot of that time, like experience in the mountains and stuff. So I don't need to do as much alpine climbing now as I used to. It's okay if I just do one or two trips a year. Like it's sort of known quantities. Whereas like sport climbing, I need to stay on top of it and be training all the time and working hard at it to stay. So, um, and a bit of that's just to mentality. Like I've always been kind of good at switching genres. Some people struggle with that. But for me, it's sort of like flipping a switch of like, you know, or is this a situation where I can safely fall off or not? Or what's the headspace surrounding it? That kind of thing. Yeah, I think a lot of alpine climbers have kind of historically had like a negative mentality about uh, like sport climbing or whatever. They've kind of poo-pooed it, but you, you just mm-hmm. kind of seem to not um, be burdened by any of those hangups. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that was ego, honestly. Uh, a lot of alpine climbers are pretty terrible at sport climbing. Mm-hmm. And so they poo-poo it because they're not any good at it. <laughs> um, and the same goes in reverse too. Lots of sport climbers are, you know, big whips at heart and don't, <laughs> uh, don't want to do any alpine climbing. So, um, you know, lots of that's about human psychology more than anything. So once you get well, I've, that- I've always, yeah, I've always remarked too that, that the Euros never had that problem and like, so many of their top alpinists literally, you know, climbed, you know, 514 when, when they were home at their local sport climbing Craig for yeah. a long, long time. And that seemed a little bit more unusual um, in the American and even the, the British scene. Uh, yeah, I think that that's totally true. I think it's a question of geography mm-hmm. and climbing culture. Like in the U.S., there aren't that many places to live where you have access to all the different types of climbing. And then also climbing culture in Europe, I think... It hasn't had the weird divisive stuff that we've had in the US, you know, trad versus sport climbing or mountaineering versus sport climbing, you know, and that piece, a piece of that is geography, you know, people from the Northwest go alpine climbing and mountaineering and people from Colorado maybe go to rifle. And so the, it's just sort of much different. Whereas in Europe, you know, like if you live in Interlaken, you're looking at the North face of the Eiger, but you've also got amazing sport climbing down the road too and um there's just way more history and not that same divisiveness and climbing culture that we've had our late friend uh hayden kennedy kind of remarked on one of your superpowers being the ability to climb f- like 510 trad in the mountains basically faster than anyone he had seen i don't know if you agree with that assessment but uh what, what do you think the keys to your success in the alpine world are mm, i think that all the climbing I did in the Black Canyon really fed really well into all of my alpine climbing because in a lot of ways, it's a miniature alpine climbing area. And I think uh, people sometimes get confused that like super high technical level, like I'm thinking of mixed climbing, for instance, crossing over from, you know, climbing M12 on bolts to climbing snow covered M6, like low angle rock kind of thing they're not really t- the same in a lot of ways same way like climbing 513 in maple canyon does not set you up to climb 511 slabs in yosemite i think i've always done a good job of stepping back and sort of being objective about that and trying to round out my skill set for all those various things and trying to look at the ways that they're interconnected but also disconnected too 
Right. So you're like saying, you're basically saying that there's a fallacy that a lot of people think or believe that like if they can do 513 in Maple, then they should be able to climb 511 anywhere. But you're, you're kind of saying that that's not really true and you need yes. to put in your dues on the 510 mm-hmm. slabs in, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Tuolumne or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's always been the trope, right? Of like, well, let's see him climb a 511 off with and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know. I mean, we're seeing that change. That's evolving now right. because people are at the levels getting so high. And also with sort of like um, parkour style bouldering in the gyms. Now people are getting actually getting those skills in the gym to some degree that they didn't used to get. Um, so I think that evolution is, is changing, but. Um, so you're saying that parkour gym style translates to f- m6 snowy slab is yes that, is that part of this connection yes that I actually is you just run at it and like dance up it with no hands and then do a yeah. thumb like a thumb catch at the very top it definitely probably translates more to like 50 than 50 meter horizontal m13 right <laughs> Okay, I got I got a lot of chart going here. Let me make sure I got this all sorted out. <laughs> um, so one of the themes, you know, in what you wrote about uh, the 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 route in Peru, and um, it's coming through in the film too, is the dad factor. Um, <laughs> you know, you're a dad. Uh, Vince is a dad, and um, you mentioned you know finding these objectives that weren't quite so involved, so you could you know, feel a little bit better about being home as a parent and risk assessment has changed for you. Um, maybe your even feelings about climate change have changed, you know, mm-hmm. because you have this, this person that you're going to send out into the world. So can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit more? Maybe the discussions you had with Vince uh, to convince him that, you know, or you guys convincing each other that, you know, this objective was the right one, even though it seems like there was a, a you know, Obviously, there's no nil risk in the mountains, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, talk a little bit about those assessments around your life changing and and uh, and having kids and and all that. In relation to alpine climbing, uh, for me, it's been less about the risk so much as the time away from home, just because it's such a time intensive thing, and so I don't really want to go to Pakistan for ten weeks and be away from Hera for that long. Um, I just don't think that would be, well, A, it wouldn't be fun for me or it'd be a sign of a good dad, really, in a lot of ways. So kind of kind of coming up with things that are doable in shorter amounts of time has been important. And then in terms of risk, like I think that just as you get older, your relationship with risk becomes sort of like you become a little bit more self-aware and hoping to make good decisions there. Um, and when you grow with experience, you kind of have a better you know, set of skills to make those decisions. And so it was pretty obvious to me from my first trip that Jiroshanka was, had relatively low objective risk. Um, You know, you're on a ridge for most of the time, or you're on a steep rock wall. There's really only one place on the route in this ice gully. We were exposed to falling stuff. And that part of the route is a bit sketchy, but you're not there for very long. And Vince wound up coming with me on those two trips because, you know, we'd been friends for the years, but Steve House let me know that Vince was like psyched to go on some alpine trips again. So it didn't take much convincing. I mean, I called him up and he said, sure, let's go. 
And so he was probably already aware that the route was objectively pretty safe because Steve had relayed that information to him. You know, just thinking ahead to the future, do you have more objectives like that lined up? Like, are you are you thinking about going back to Peru for anything, or is there other areas that kind of fit that fit all those uh, check all those boxes for you in terms of you know how easy it is to access and risk assessment and so forth? So I am actually going to go back to Peru this summer, and Aaron and Hare are going to go for two weeks, and we're going to go sport climbing in that area, Pitu Marca, which I think will be a really cool trip for Hera because. She's been to lots of places in Europe and stuff and like butterflies and rainbows and all those good things. And so I want to take her a place that's like a little rough around the edges, you know, um, which will be a cool growth experience for her. Uh, And then I'm going to spend another three weeks and climb with the younger guy, John Ebers from the Front Range um, and hopefully go free climb a big wall rock route. And then maybe try this ice route that I tried back in 2015 that's also in the Ywash. Um, and uh, yeah, Peru just makes a lot of sense because it's logistically pretty easy to get there and back. And the weather's often relatively good. So you know you're not going to waste a trip sitting around. So yeah, for right now, it's checking a lot of boxes for that kind of thing. There's some other places on my radar and some other things I'd like to do. And I would like to get back to the Himalaya at some point as Hera gets a little older, but we'll see. Yeah. And then, she, yeah, right. And then she doesn't even want to hang out with you. Yeah, exactly. Like, Good leave. <laughs> yeah. I got like two, three more years where she yeah, wants to exactly. die with me. And then... <laughs> Good leave. Mom lets me have the phone more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, let me ask you this about the media. You don't know this because you're not there, but you know, the fact that you are not on social media at all is, First of all, it's a running joke because anytime there's a picture of you, somebody's like, oh my God, there he is. Like, <laughs> there's Wharton. And then there's like a thread where we all joke about, um, okay. your, you know, that you had a flip phone forever and all that sort of thing. So, but, and it's also this crazy thing because you're a modern climber, you're, you're a Patagonia climber, although you have a job with them as well. Um, but we think of sponsored climbers as basically having to do all the shit, you know, mm-hmm. the posts and the TikToks and the dances and Have you ever put a bunch of cams on your harness and then shaken your ass for the camera? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) mean, more or less, yes. (laughs) um, I hear that's the ending of the the film, the real rock film. (laughs) Just 10 minutes of Josh dancing with the cam. So, however, we're having sort of this Josh Wharton media push moment. And um, it's a little bit antithetical to to Mm -hmm. like your career as a climber. Um, So, you know, what was put into the decision to... Um, you know, get the footage as best you can. I don't know if there was, um, you know, there were what the situation was with photographers or with filmmakers on these trips, um, but resulting in this real rock film, you know, tell me about the decision. Is it just not a big deal? It's like part part of the deal or um, do you, do you find that it is bothersome at all and, and goes against maybe some of your earlier young man ethics about, <laughs> about um, documenting your climbs or spraying or whatever it happens to be? Well, so the trip came about, uh, the film came about kind of because I randomly ran into Nick Rosen at Sender when I was picking up a friend to go climbing in the Flatirons. Um, He just happens to live across the street from Nick. And he asked me, uh, oh, do you have anything cool coming up? And I said, well, I'm going on this trip to Peru. Maybe it could work. And 
I was already, Drew Smith was originally going to climb and shoot some photos for Patagonia with Vince and I. So I already knew Drew was going along. And on past trips, Mikey Schaefer had been there and shot a lot of photos and video. And I just kind of knew since it was um, a route that has good anchors and objectively safe and a nice base camp and all these things that it wouldn't add that much complication. And I also thought it was a really good opportunity to do some storytelling around climate change just because of the history of the peak and um, the nature of the route. So it kind of just seemed like an opportunity for that. I do think that shooting on alpine routes oftentimes can change the experience a little bit and that alpine climbing and the experiences you have up there has this sort of ineffable nature to it. And whenever you do storytelling around it or do a video or write an article, you kind of put it in a box for people and, and create this experience and the story that, you know, isn't quite what it was. Um, and so there is an element of that, but this was a good opportunity to do something, do a video, do some storytelling that, that made sense given the objective without too much, without changing it too much. Well, little did you know, but Nick Rosen actually orchestrated that quote unquote chance meeting. Um, he'd been like for seven or eight months had been tracking you and like, it was like, go, go, go. He's, he's coming out of the house. Go <laughs> team two, team two in position, yeah. Nick approach him, be casual, be chill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I doubt that, <laughs> but I mean, I have had experiences in the past where I've said no to those kinds of things. Nick mm -hmm. had, or Nick or Pete had approached me before a bunch of years ago when I climbed the North face of the North twin. And said, oh, would you want to do a film about climbing the North Face and the North Twin? Oh, and God. Maybe we'll go back and like, and I was like, no. I'm not going to do a film. I'm not wrapping in from the top. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's people yeah. not knowing what the like, fuck they were talking uh, about <laughs> by any stretch. Yeah. So, I mean, I have had those experiences. Here, let's hike some camera shit up the woolly shoulder it'll be fun <laughs> yeah that's amazing yeah, yeah they didn't and know I what think, was going on there <laughs> i think the other thing that's changed too is drones mm -hmm. have changed a lot like now with drones it's way easier to get cool footage than it used to be it used to be really involved to have somebody like well, i mean it is involved to have someone along on the route unless you're really posing it down right so the nature of the route makes it you know makes a big difference and also the skill involved in doing that, like guys like Mikey Schaefer, Chris Alstron, Drew, who shoot high-end climbing photography in these alpine climbing situations, it's like way underrated skill set. It is a difficult job um, in terms of like, you have to go and live up on this mountain, but also bust the camera out all the time and, you know, be keeping up with the team and not slowing everybody down. So, um, so I think that, you know, that's an underappreciated fact. So. Yeah, the drone footage is really interesting. We've gotten so used to it, um, mm -hmm. but it's like, yeah, I mean, you had to have sort of Red Bull money in the past to have the chopper show up, and the yeah. chopper was only going to show up for those two hours that one day, and everything had to be in, in position and things like that, and then everybody was annoyed because there was a fucking chopper there, and I mean, I know you've been sort of intimate with those situations from the outside looking mm -hmm. in. Um, in Patagonia and stuff. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating, the drones. I mean, the drones have their own annoyance, but um, but it's way more less of, uh, intrusive than a freaking helicopter, that's for sure. Red Bull helicopter. Yeah, and it depends on the place too. In Patagonia, there's lots of other climbers on Giershanka. They're 
happen to be another team, but generally speaking, there's nobody, you know, there aren't other people around. So you're hopefully mm-hmm. not wrecking anybody else's experience. So is that, is that important to you the way you go about in the mountains? Like not yeah, sort of I think trying how to step the, on other people's toes. Yeah. I think for me, style is less important than so much as how you're affecting other people's experience up there. And for instance, like Patagonia has, Climbing Patagonia has become less interesting to me because a piece of alpine climbing for me is an adventure away from other people out there. And now whenever you, you know, my last trips to Patagonia, there are always other people on the same routes or right by you. Um, And so it just doesn't feel adventurous in the same way it used to. All right. So Patagonia is out, overcrowded and not worth it and overrated. What what else are your big picture takes on the Alpine scene at the moment? (laughs) Uh, I mean, that is a serious question. I mean, is there anyone out there? Like, I mean, the the Janu team comes to mind, you know, is there, who's out there that's doing like rad shit? Like who's impressed? That would be the first thing I would mention. I mean, I've climbed a bit with Jackson. We did a really cool route on um, Wheeler Peak a couple of years ago. That was a really cool adventure in the middle of nowhere up this big chossy wall that, you know, hadn't been climbed before in winter. Um, and you're talking about in Nevada, right? Yeah, I am talking in yeah, Nevada. Yeah. 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 Um, and that was cool. I mean, people, people have this idea that alpine climbing has to be, you know, is rad only if you get on an airplane and fly halfway across the world. And that's just not really true. Um, like I've had some, uh, that Wheeler peak was a perfect example of a really awesome out there adventure that I drove in my minivan from sport climbing in St. George. Um, and I've had some of my biggest like out there adventures in the Canadian Rockies, which again is a place that just got in the Siena and drove up there. Didn't involve going halfway across the world, but we get so sort of like trapped in these ideas that it has to be Patagonia. It has to be Alaska. It has to be Pakistan. Um, which I don't necessarily think is the case but it was really obvious on wheeler peak that jackson was really good um at the kind of climbing that you do on big mountains like snow covered chossy rock nebulous root finding kind of thing is he also good at parkour bouldering in the gym i think so i think he's excellent <laughs> now you love that that's how it got so good <laughs> but yeah i think the way that um he and matt and alan have fostered um a really strong like relationship partnership the last few years and done a lot of building block climbs up to that janu climb gives it a lot of validation and a lot of credibility um the fact that they had to kind of alpine red point it go back several seasons keep learning more about it makes that one of the more impressive things that's been done recently um and just like sort of the general you guys laugh about the downplaying it thing but that sort of psychology in alpine climbing i think you'll often see that the best raddest routes will be done by people who will sort of downplay it, not be hyperbolic about it, not be overly emotional about it because you can't be that way. You can't have that psychology up there in those situations. Otherwise you'll be scared and running away at every turn, you know? Mm. So it's interesting. Where else is too crowded to go anymore? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't know. I haven't been there. (laughs) You haven't been there. (laughs) (laughs) Just remember, you're part of the crowd, Joshua. I mean, I think climbing is getting crazy popular, but lots of the forms of climbing that are growing in popularity, like bouldering and sport climbing and gym climbing, you know, alpine climbing maybe is growing 
in popularity, but as a small, as a percentage of the whole is actually probably like reducing in popularity to a large degree. Um, so there's probably more Alpine climbers, but if you looked in the nineties, there was as a percentage of all climbers, there was probably a larger percentage of Alpine climbers to the total. So is climbing in a team of three kind of necessary for a big route like Janu? Is that, do you think that that is the best approach for a really hard cutting edge climb is climbing with, uh, in a threesome? I think it gives you a lot of psychological strength. There are moments on like the hardest Alpine routes where you're doing a long belay, you know, shivering there. We always used to like Kelly Cordes and I used to always joke, like, you know, when you yell up, like, how's it going up there? What you're really saying is hurry the fuck up. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. 100%. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And when you got somebody else to bullshit with at the belay or feel good about in your little zone, that gives you a lot of psychological strength. There's also some safety in it. If somebody gets hurt, you've got um, two people to get the the hurt person down, which can be really useful. From a weight point of view, you know, you're probably still only taking one tent. So you're splitting that, you're splitting one stove. Um, so there are some weight advantages. So it has a bunch of advantages. There are some like drawbacks. It can often be a little bit slower you've got a little bit more people to cause falling stuff to cause below, you know, who's below you. So it just sort of depends, but generally I think three is a nice way to climb, particularly if the route is, you know, going to be psychologically demanding and have some slower climbing on it. And just more on the partnership aspect. I mean, cause I think that's so important to success in Alpine climbing. What do you look for in terms of trait personality traits or characteristics that you think make for a good Alpine climber? What kind of traits do you kind of aspire to hold to make yourself a good one? I well, think and I, uh, before you answer that, actually I'll say too, that it seems to me that you're a little more mercenary than a lot of um, cl- climbers that climb stuff that, that yeah. you do, you know, you've got to, set guys but then some i think also it's a longevity thing you know like mm-hmm. you know kelly for the most part's moved on from that kind of stuff so and you're still banging it out so um just just as a as a sort of a context thing you're you are willing to sort of you know cast out with a, a bunch of different people when you go into the mountains for sure and honestly that's been a challenging thing climbing for as long as i have and also in the sort of niche free climbing high technical standard way i like to approach alpine climbing like a lot of my best alpine climbing partners and friends have wound up going on to careers or families more so than i have and it is true that i alpine climb way less than i used to you know i probably spend a couple months a year doing it versus six months a year doing it like i used to and so that just by nature finds makes it a little trickier to find people but yeah the partners i choose like Partially it's just, are they excited for it? And then also people who are kind of even keel and that I know I'm going to enjoy their time. It's also kind of fun to go on a trip. Like, you know, I didn't know Vince that well. So going on the trip for the first time, you have like all this time at base camp and during the travel, getting to know someone, which is fun, you know, it makes it way more interesting. Um, And in Vince's case, he had so much experience and and done all these, you know, routes through the years that I was confident that he was going to be fine up there you know yeah like the ruble face for example yeah yeah <laughs> it's like just yeah. the biggest like pretty um, alpine climb of all time yeah like that one <laughs> yeah a couple of those <laughs> and you get that sense when you climb with people too like in certain situations you know um 
how they'll how dramatic they are, how much like things affect them and stuff. And then you get a sense for, and you get that even just cragging or going out and doing a route in the black or on the diamond or something. And then that'll sort of feeds into what it'll be like to climb with them on a big mountain route. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating too, because I feel like sometimes, and you, you probably have a little sense of this, but not so much, but like, you know, you're, you call, like you're calling people up to the big leagues a lot of times when you when you bring these folks on these trips and it's it's you may not realize that it's but it's probably pretty exciting for them i mean you have a, a extremely good reputation for you know not just being a good climber but i mean coming home like you're still still banging it out you know even though you've had some close calls that i know of but you know what like who's that cat you did seratory with yeah that was actually one of the coolest partner experiences <laughs> i've had in in uh alpine climbing um, right. So I met Andrew Rothner, who was a guy who was a comp climber as a kid from the LA area and got into outdoor bouldering and was living in Estes Park, working on the tree trimming crew, going bouldering all the time. And uh, met him, you know, in Chaos Canyon. We started going bouldering together a little bit, training at my wall. And then that winter, we went out uh, sport climbing in the flat irons on like a 30 degree day when it was snowy and he seemed to have fun and didn't blink an eye. And I was like, huh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and we just got a log, like shared sets of humor, um, enjoyed each other's company. And so that summer we went and did um, a trip to Mount Hooker, which is first time like going multi-pitch climbing. And then I was like, oh, you want to go to Sarah? try free climb territory this winter. I was going with my other friend, Mikey Schaefer as well. And he was like, yeah, I'm in. And um, it was such a rad experience because, I mean, he had never camped away from his car before in his life. So like bivied at the base of territory was his first like out there bivy. And it was just like cool to share a new thing with someone, you know, um, kind of made it fresh for me. And he was a, great part of the team because he was such a good rock climber he led the crux pitch on Saratore. that was his like his second lead ever in patagonia um and it was his second day in crampons he'd been out climbing in crampons once before <laughs> so um so yeah that was just a really cool experience in a lot of ways and um really fun to do andrew has not gone on to do a bunch of alpine climbing <laughs> Uh, he decided he preferred Fontainebleau, which is fair, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I kind of cherish that climb in a lot of ways, not because we did the second free ascent of this route, but of Saratore, but because, uh, you know, got to share that experience with Andrew and it was kind of the symbiotic learning experience. So was Mikey like, what the fuck? When you told him who, who you were bringing? I think a little bit, but I think he trusted me that I wouldn't make right, a terrible right. decision. Um, no, he's a super nice guy because we met, I think, up in up in East Elk. Um, okay. I, I can't remember where I met Andrew with you. He was climbing with you, but mm -hmm. I think it was, it might have been after. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that guy, like I said, like that's an interesting one because he, he had no idea. It wasn't like he was sharpening his ice tools waiting for the call from Josh Wharton. But um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's something like the fuck he's going to, you know, that's like a lifetime thing. Like, how can you ever not stop talking about something like that, you know, as you grow older anyway? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he had an amazing <laughs> trip. Like we rolled into Shelton 
Three days later, there's a perfect huge window. We climbed Cerro Torre. Then he went to Buenos Aires and went skateboarding for a month and got an Argentine girlfriend. So it was like... <laughs> That's <laughs> it was amazing. Incredible. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> You're like the godfather. You're yeah. like, what? You know, let me make your dreams come true. <laughs> I love that you could just go bouldering in, uh, in Chaos Canyon and then, you know... A few months, you blink your eyes, and all of a sudden, you're at the summit of Cerro Torre with Josh Horton. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Mike, like, what happened to, my, <laughs> to me? <laughs> we we had Andrew lead the crux, or not the crux, the summit mushroom, which is literally like the easiest ice climb you can imagine when you come up that side of Cerro Torre. But as soon as we like put him on the lead to go up there, and he was going up this low angle ice, which you would normally essentially just like walk up. You know, he's swinging both tools as if it was his first time. <laughs> he's climbing in your head. We were both like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, and there's kind of no doubt that, you know, if if Andrew had suddenly been a load on the summit of Saratory, he may not have been able, capable of making it down on his own. Um, so, but there's just sort of like, you know, again, experience of judging what the situation is going to be and what the skills are required. And in alpine climbing, you're like really the sum of your parts as a team, which is really cool. And that's something I really love about alpine climbing. Um, it's not common. I mean, it doesn't really matter that much who you're climbing with when you go out sport climbing so much other than, you know, you enjoy each other's company or whatever. But in alpine climbing, you're, you're, it's a true team sport, which I really enjoy about it. So, you know, in that case, Andrew, Mikey, and myself, we all brought something good to the team, you know. Is Andrew the guy who made that really weird video about bouldering in Estes Park? Yes. Yeah. I just yeah. that just popped into my head. We'll we'll link to that in the show notes. It's one of the <laughs> oddest pieces of climbing <laughs> media yeah. you can watch. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew's a character, you know, he's kind of new school climber, but from the old guard of climbing when climbing had a lot of characters and eccentric folks in it, um, which doesn't have quite so much anymore. They're all in Patagonia now, crowding up all the roots. <laughs> so as the pressure has probably mounted, maybe it hasn't, um, what would it take for you to start an Instagram account, Josh Wharton? What kind of money are you offering me? <laughs> I'm not offering you any money. What about Patagonia? <laughs> <laughs> I think Patagonia. Somebody's, somebody, somebody at Patagonia wishes and wonders, there's some marketing people there who are like, why, who is this guy that we have and he's not on social media? And it goes up to some level where somebody's there like, yeah, yeah, Josh, we don't fuck with, he doesn't fuck with social media, like leave him alone. I think- But it has to be there, like people wanting you to do it. Well, I'm sure that there's some of that, <laughs> but I think that, um, you know, like five years ago, six years ago, if you'd asked me this question, I would have said that I felt like some form of pressure, maybe- you know, real or not, I don't know. But now I uh, don't feel that pressure. In some way, I get a lot more like when I have cool. those conversations, oh, yeah. respect. Um, and I think that's just because the writing on the wall with social media has become apparent in culture in general. Um, mm -hmm. People are more cognizant of the negative sides of it um, and the impact it's having on our culture. You know, I would say at first I chose not to participate in social media because I found it sort of narcissistic and voyeuristic. Um, sort of. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> I'm trying to be fine since anyway. everyone else is on social media. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, as I've read more about it and learned more about it, the link between, for instance, teenage girl suicide and, social, and the rise of social media and obviously impacts on democracy, I think it's proven itself in lots of ways to be a net negative thus far. You know, maybe that'll sort itself out at some point. But I feel like anytime you participate in something, you are endorsing that thing to some degree. So making that idealistic choice to not participate is something that's felt good to me. Um, and I've been very lucky and grateful that the people at Patagonia and other sponsors have not pushed me to do it, um, which I'm I'm thankful for. And you know, so far so good. We'll see. But there probably is some bean counter ready to boot me off the team at the first moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. If you ever do join the first video, though, please make it you with cams on your harness shaking your ass. <laughs> <laughs> you can show those bean counters what's right. up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the latest bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, we talk to one of the best pure rock climbers on the planet, Ethan Pringle. Ethan has been a professional for over 20 years and put up boulders, sport climbs, and trad routes all at the top of their respective scales. Both Andrew and I have been astonished in person by Ethan's ability to move on rock with uncanny power and precision. On this bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, we reflect with Ethan on 20 years in the biz and at the top of the game. Available with all our bonus material at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast, where for $5.14 a month, you can support the show and feel the love. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast, where you can send $5.14 every month for the rest of your life. On today's final bit, we are featuring Evan Phillips, a musician and producer from Anchorage, Alaska. But you may know him from the Fernline podcast, an OG but ongoing chronicle of the characters and climbs of Alaska and beyond. This song, titled Close to Me, is from Evan's EP, Cabin Vibes Volume 1, available at Spotify along with the Fernline. I, for one, anxiously await Volume 2, Evan. To a place 
place in the country A home where I could stay That's one for the child Living inside of me That's two for the old man Waiting to be free I know it's hard When you're laughing God is spark You gotta keep it together
just listened to another episode of the Runout Podcast. If you like our show, the best way to support us is by giving us money. We don't care about iTunes ratings. You can share it with your friends or don't, whatever. But we are 100% listener supported because we believe this is the best way to stay independent, say what we think, and be accountable to the most important people in our lives, which is you, our listeners. To support our show, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. For as little as $5.14 a month, you can become part of the Runout Nation and get bonus episodes that will titillate your ear holes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.